economic policy has a significant effect on our individual health. And policies are not always equitable. To learn more about how systems and structures affect health, I talked to Dr. Tiffany Green. Dr. Green is a health economist at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. We discussed how health and economic security are cyclically linked, how COVID-19 has highlighted many structural inequities in our country, and important work she is doing in Dane County to improve Black maternal and infant health. From the University of Wisconsin-Madison Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology, I'm Jackie Askins, and this is the Women's HealthCast. I am very pleased to welcome Dr. Tiffany Green to the Women's HealthCast. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to talk to you. I think this is the first time that I get the pleasure of speaking with a health economist, and I will readily admit this area of expertise is a little bit over my head, so I'm really excited to learn from you today. Um, and I'm hoping we can get started by just you know, telling me a little bit about your area of expertise. What does it mean to be a health economist? You know, it's really funny that you asked that because I think I'm probably one of the stranger sorts of health economists. You know, health economics is inherently very interdisciplinary. And um, a, a health economist think about, well, how, given a resource-constrained world, how do people produce health? Um, and health economists like me who think about maternal and child health think about how um, parents produce child health, right? Um, the big difference, I think, between economics and public health is that, understandably, the focus in public health is on public health and health being the most important of all things. Economists don't think that way. Health is an, an important part of our total life satisfaction. So there, even though health is super important and allows us to enjoy life and to work, there are also other things in our, our search for satisfaction that matter. And those trade-offs and those decision-makings are what economists really try to focus on modeling. Do you have a sort of a particular focus or um, area of research within this field? Sure. Um, as I as I alluded to before, even within an interdisciplinary field subfield of economics, I'm pretty interdisciplinary, and my main area of focus, unsurprisingly, is on reproductive age health people or repro people of reproductive age rather. Um, I'm particularly interested in racial and ethnic disparities in reproductive health. And that spans quite a range of things, um, generally looking at birth outcomes, but I've come to really start focusing on women's health outcomes and also birthing people in general's health outcomes. And beyond that, um, I have started since I got to UW-Madison doing work um, in family planning research. One of the things I'm very interested in is trying to understand how access to abortion impacts maternal and child health disparities as well. So let's talk a little bit more, I guess, about um, women's health, reproductive health. Um, but that's kind of our interest here in the Department of OBGYN on this particular podcast. And um, what are some ways, can you walk me through some ways that um, economic policy can kind of affect women's health and security? Oh, my gosh, that's such a huge and important question. Um, in general, you know, I'm in, I've been in med schools for my entire postgraduate career, from my postdocs here at UW to my last job at VCU, and now I'm back here in a school of medicine. So obviously healthcare matters, but beyond, beyond healthcare, there's so many things that impact women's health. Um, for example, we can think about housing policy, you know, we're having stable housing, as we can see, 
um, during COVID is really important to your mental health, your your physical well-being. Um, so anything, any kinds of economic policies that impact people's ability to to eat, to work, to live, to thrive, all of those things impact health outcomes. Um, for example, I'm doing some work now looking at the impacts of the Affordable Care Act on maternal and child health outcomes. And what's interesting about that is that, you know, we think about healthcare as just, you know, the ACA is just access to insurance, and sure, that's it. But remember, you know, healthcare is extraordinarily expensive. And that's a problem that would be a whole podcast in and of itself. But one of the things that having health care does or health insurance coverage does is it frees up money for other things. So the ACA can also have um, impacts on people's economic well-being, which can also translate into better health outcomes. What I'm doing now specifically is looking at the ACA's uh, impact on pregnancy-related weight. And although pregnancy-related weight, like preconception weight and gestational weight gain, they are tricky measures, and I think that I've come to feel a little bit ambivalent about what weight means in the context of pre pregnancy and how it is racialized and how it is used as a weapon sometimes in healthcare encounters. But I do think it can tell us something, something important about inequality and tell us something important about how the law may be changing maternal and child health outcomes. So that's one example of um, how economists look at various policies and look at their impacts on health outcomes, among other things. As I was preparing for our conversation, I kind of got in this like cyclical thought pattern of, um, I'm thinking particularly in the U.S., because that's the context that I'm familiar with. Um, it seems like our health has huge implications for our economic security and then our economic security in turn has huge implications for our health. And we can kind of end up in this circle. And I'm, I, I want to talk about that circle a little bit and the different ways that in our, in our system, in the system that I live in and that we all live in in our country, that health and economic security and economic security and health kind of end up cyclically linked. Yeah, I think that's a really important and again, complex question. So I'll start in this sort of conversation thinking about COVID, we can see very clearly that COVID is not um, somehow delinked from the economy, that there's a very direct impact on our ability to control COVID and control community spread on economic outcomes. For example, um, not being able, so getting COVID, not being able to work, not being able to pay bills. And, and more importantly, we see with small business owners, you know, opening up the economy is is sort of some people champion that. But if consumers are too afraid to come to your business, then you're not going to make any money. Right. And so I, I think economic well-being and health are so intricately linked that it's almost impossible to to have one without the other. Um, but let's start talk about my area of expertise, which is really early life health. And we know that, um, you know, growing up and having been born at low birth weight tends to reverberate throughout the life course. So we know that children that are born at low birth weight or are more likely to have worse scholastic outcomes, which in turn leads to worse outcomes in the labor market, et cetera. And we know that some of those outcomes are transmitted intergenerationally, like having a mother that's born low birth weight seems to be correlated with you being born low birth weight. And, those, and, and the ability to mitigate that is also dependent on, on, on family income and wealth, right? So it's all so intertwined. It, it, and it's hard to know where we intervene. 
But I think, um, you know, health is is this uncertain thing. Uh, we, we'd like to think we can control everything in life and health is uncertain. But what we do know is that giving people the resources to be able to, to take care of their, their basic needs is critical. And so I'm really excited about pilot programs in places like San Francisco that are giving um, cash to Black and I think Pacific Islander moms, if I'm not mistaken, I, I need to check on that. Um, giving them cash, cash transfers, cash grants during pregnancy. And, and they're going to trace these women to see how their birth outcomes change or not change and how their well-being changes based on getting this funding. And there are other researchers here at UW that are, are looking at the impacts of these kinds of um, cash transfer programs on, on outcomes among women and children and their families. And I think this is going to have really important implications for our conversations about universal basic income because it's really difficult to survive and to thrive if you don't have your basic needs met. And that is a conversation I think that's difficult to have in the United States where we have a, a narrative that we have to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps, that the American dream is accessible to everybody. But the empirical evidence and reality says that it is not accessible to everybody. And when we don't make that accessible to everybody, then that means we don't get to achieve our highest potential. You know, in economics, you know, very basic e econ 10, I would teach students about the production possibilities frontier, right? And so the idea is that we can operate on it and we can only shift it out with technology and other similar interventions. And sometimes we operate inside it. And we operate inside it when we don't take care of our citizens and, and we, we just lose, we all lose. And so that's why I care about people having the right start at birth, because that means that they're able to achieve their potential. And when they win, we all win as a society. So, and I don't know if that answers your question, but I think um, health and economic well-being are intricately linked. And I think to give people the right start at birth, making sure that they are healthy is making sure that they have, their families have the economic resources to be able to take care of them. And when children are born with health conditions, making sure that they have the resources to, to take care of those issues as well and not make it difficult for families to access services that will allow them to um, take care of children that may have disabilities or other issues so that they can also survive and thrive. So this, this actually makes me want to ask you about some work that you're doing specifically in Dane County. Um, a few weeks ago, it was announced that you're co-chairing, co-leading the um, Black Maternal and Child Health Alliance of Dane County. And I mean, it sounds, I, I just want to know more about um, sort of why the alliance was created and what your goals are, because it sounds like it's it's feeding perfectly into your um, interest area of making sure that, you know, children have a great start and addressing um, like racial disparities in low birth weight and other infant health outcomes. Yes, that's right. Um, you know, if you had asked me a few years ago whether I'd be doing this now, I would have probably said, heck no. Um, you know, I was I was the kind of economist that, that was like, you know, I, I have my computer, I have my status, that's a statistical program, I wanna run my data, just leave me alone and let me do that work. And, you know, economics is, has been a very useful set of tools, but I think economics is, is can be very insular. I mean, you know, there's a lot of, of, of power in those tools to be able to do good, 
but somehow it's a badge of honor to become be apolitical to be to pretend that you're objective which of course we know is not true um but that's sort of the culture that i was raised in as an economist but uh, you know intuitively i knew that i wanted to make changes in the world so economics for me is a tool to make those changes and i think the biggest um thing that really intervened here was during my second postdoc, I was a health disparities research scholar. At the time, that program was headed up by Dr. Gloria Sardo, who is sort of an icon here at UW in the state for her groundbreaking work. And she demanded that we take a community-based participatory research class. And I'm an economist, like, that's not what we do. <laughs> it's like, I don't want to take this. Why are you making me take this? But it was probably one of the most valuable things that I that I learned, because as researchers, we're very controlling. We want to control everything around us. But when we're talking about problems that deeply impact communities, we need to center them. We need to center their perspectives. And this is not a social justice issue, although that's important to me. For me, it is a knowledge production issue. So if we're going to get this right, we have to center the communities that are affected. And I think over time, I started to it started to inch in. Well, first I started to um, uh, serve on committees that that funded community-based participatory research grants or community-engaged grants, and that allowed me to see the fundamental differences in these types of grants than your standard NIH types of grants. And I learned to to value the relationships that I saw between community partners and researchers that were egalitarian and that were clearly complementary. And I also learned to see red flags in, the t in, in certain types of relationships that would impact the research and impact um, the dissemination of that research. And then I think the, the moment that really turned everything on was when I did a research study in the community related to discrimination and weight outcomes among Latinx immigrants in the area. Um, I know this is a long-winded story, but I promise I'll get there in a minute. Um, when I did this particular project, I was really interested in, in thinking about how discrimination impacts immigrant health outcomes over time. I am a second-generation immigrant, or technically a 2.5. My father is a Black immigrant from Jamaica. And I was really interested in countering this narrative that immigrants acculturate, this idea that their health outcomes decline because they're automatically sort of uh, adopting these um, adverse or poor US culture be type behaviors. And that can be kind of toxic, right? It's sort of a very dysfunctional idea that you're, you're creating this sort of narrative that, be that these immigrants' health, are is, they're declining just because, right? They're exposed to US culture. And I knew from my father's experience and from what I knew as a scholar that they're also increasingly exposed to discrimination over time. But, you know, trying to use regular data to address this wasn't going to allow me to get at it. And my, my research collaborator, who's a social psychologist, you know, really emphasized the importance of understanding these psychosocial mechanisms. And from that, we our pilot project was born. And a lot of people said, well, you're going to have problems getting into this community. And I had zero problems, and I mean zero. And I say that not because I was good, but because the community consultant that we hired was good. Like her expertise is bar none. We had no problem accessing folks in the community. She also told us that our particular research procedures weren't gonna work, 
and we didn't listen and they did not work. And <laughs> that really taught us the importance of, of, of not only just engaging with expertise in the community, but I saw things that I would never have seen had I not spent time in the community. I, my students had insights that I never would have had had I not brought an undergrads, which people say, I don't wanna work with undergrads. Let me tell you, they can run circles around some grad students when it comes to collecting data, doing research and their capacity for excellence and seeing things that we can't see. So when I came back here, um, you know, it, I think I was compelled by the fact that Dane County or rather Wisconsin has the highest black infant mortality rates in the country. And I knew I had to do something but my experiences over the past nearly decade taught me that this doesn't get solved at my computer, right? It gets solved when I'm able to center the perspectives of the communities that are affected. And now, unlike before, I am a part of that community. Of course, I'd always been a Black woman, but now I'm a mother. And that really hits different, right? The data hits different. I, you know, I see things very differently now that I have so much to lose. And, and, and it really shaped my perspective in a way that led me to understand that, I, that without this community engagement, without sitting down and listening to the perspectives of the Black women in this community, we're gonna continue, we're just gonna be hamsters on a wheel. And that is why I decided to accept their offer to, to become co-chair of the Alliance. And I see it as something that I would not have been ready for many years ago. I see this as uh, an ev a welcome evolution and a privilege to be in this space, to be able to apply my, my knowledge that I've learned from being a researcher, because that matters, evidence matters, but also to learn to appreciate these, these perspectives from the brilliant Black women in this community. And to have a, a seat at the table with some of the CEOs from the healthcare systems and be able to speak truth to power is something that I never knew that I wanted or needed, but I'm glad I have it and I'm glad I'm here. And it's a privilege to be able to do this work. So I know that was really like roundabout, but that's really how I got here. I'm curious. I know it's a it's a big group. There are 20 plus members, I think, that I had just read. And um I'm I'm curious who else is involved and kind of how broad reaching it'll be into the community. It is. It's quite an effort. And I am I think I'm one of the representatives from UW, but most of the people on the alliance are folks in the community that have been doing the work for a very long time. Um, for example, folks like the Harambe Village doulas. There are people that work in um, healthcare systems. There are people that are public health nurses, right? It's such a wide range of people, which is just really, really exciting. Um, and I think that's going to help us do better because we have people coming from all of these different perspectives that have sometimes decades of experience in this community that I'm hoping to learn from. And hopefully they'll learn something from me. Uh, and I think that is just really exciting. And the second thing that's exciting for me, and I don't know if it was clear from the press release, but I and the co-chair, Leah Stevenson, will be seated members on um, the, the Health Council, the Dane County Health Council. And I think that's really important because when I'm not particularly interested in 
in implementing individual level solutions for what is a structural set of problems. And I'm really happy to be able to sit at the table with people that are actually making decisions to to represent the voices of black women that have spoken out and and talked about some of the problems that affect the communities here. I think that is probably the biggest shift that I've made, you know, in economics, we think a lot about, you know, individual level behaviors. And while that's important, individual level behaviors occur within systems. And I, at this point in my career, am interested in systemic change and how we can create environments that produce the best outcomes for Black women and children. And for, frankly, for all mothers, I think when Black women win, a lot of other people are going to win too. I want to ask a little bit more about, um, as you just mentioned, individual impacts versus um, systemic structure impacts. Um, just to make sure that I have a good understanding and that our listeners have a good understanding. And I mean, I guess for our podcast, the people who listen, we're not necessarily academic, we're not necessarily medical, but our our interests level, my interest level, at least as our host, right? I'm neither of those things. I'm a journalism degree who uh, has a microphone now, I guess. And um, I want to better understand some of the systems and structures that are at play in my health because I'm learning in this department that like making sure I get my preventive screenings and my flu shot is just a narrow, narrow, narrow sliver of what affects my overall overall well-being. And there are way more systems and structures at play that have bigger bearing on my health picture. Sure. That's, that's a, again, a big question. And I have a couple of thoughts on that. Um, one is when we talk about healthcare systems, I wrote a piece in Scientific American and with a colleague of mine now, Hagiwara at BCU, where we talk about implicit bias training. Now that has been quite a huge thing, <laughs> you know, in in healthcare systems and universities, et cetera. But you know, as as a economist, as a pop health scientist, as a scientist, period, I want to know: Does it actually work? And the evidence suggests that it is not particularly effective yet. I think it can be, but what I'm more interested in is, is what are the environments that allow people to behave in these ways? What are the environments that we can make hostile for racist and hospitable to everybody else? That's that's what I'm particularly interested in. And I'm also interested in, you know, how we can address, rather than just in people's individual level implicit biases, how is this baked into medicine? And so one of those ways is through stereotyping in clinical algorithms. We see race embedded into lots of clinical algorithms. Um, Germane to obstetrics, of course, is the VBAC calculator, right? And so when we think about um, having that second after a, after a first cesarean birth, um, women may decide that they want to try try for a vaginal birth after C-section. But there's a calculator that embeds race and ethnicity. So if you're Black or you're Hispanic, you're automatically downgraded in that VBAC calculator. And that may impact how a, a physician counsels you about whether you should attempt a trial of labor. That's a problem. There is no biological or genetic reason why a black or a Hispanic person, because a Hispanic person can certainly be black too. <laughs> there's no biological reason why that, that that should be embedded in the formula, except for people were doing a cohort data study. 
those two things were significant, but so was marital status. So were other social indicators, right? And the fact that it's sanctioned by the NIH is a problem because it, it institutionalizes racial stereotyping. And so I think one of the things that we can do in obstetrics and that they, they, they people have done in other fields, for example, like thinking about kidney function and how that's embedded, like that's that's something that's being addressed here at UW, which I'm very excited about. Well, we need to do the same thing in obstetrics and we need to do the same thing in gynecology. Like how can we how can we take race out of these clinical algorithms? How do we teach race in class? Like how do we teach doctors how to diagnose disease? How is that embedded in licensure exams, right? And I think that those are some of the things that we can address that are on that are right here in our faces that can help shift the needle for black women and children and everybody for that for that matter. So I think that that's one important systemic thing that we can do to address um, racial disparities in in medicine in general and in, in obstetrics in particular. In terms of the wider environment, there are so many things that affect um, health outcomes. Um, when we talk about access to care in general, a lot of it is is you know not only just people not being insured, but uh, people being sorted into low wage jobs, and we know that is conditioned by race and ethnicity. And I think people have a hard time understanding this because it's a complex set of steps. First, people want to believe that the, the life is egalitarian in the United States because that is that is the that's the mythology of the US, but that's in contrary to the empirical evidence. Um, one of the things that I talk to my students about is the great work um, of Professor Rukeya Yerby. I think she's at St. Louis University, and she's done some really great work looking at um, structural discrimination within occupations. Um, so one of the things that we're seeing is that Black and or Latinx folks are disproportionately likely to contract COVID. And a lot of people, you know, I review articles sometimes where they talk about these biological and genetic differences. And I'm like, hold up, right? We know that these groups are more likely to be exposed where they work, right? We know in Brown County in Wisconsin, for example, you know, meatpacking plants where there are plenty of workplace safety violations, where people are working in these uh, too close together and meatpacking plants not being protected, more likely to be immigrant and or Latinx, that that exposes people to to COVID in ways that they would not be otherwise. When we talk about um, immigration, when we talk about folks of color, right, they're more likely to be in agriculture. And those industries were exempt from workplace protections back in the late 30s. Again, more likely to be people of color in those those industries, less likely to be protected, um, have sick leave, have minimum wages. Um, that that exposes people disproportionately to COVID, particularly because they don't have PPE. And so I guess my point is that it yes, it's healthcare of of course, but it's also that we have these structural inequalities that are embedded in our all of our ways of life that make people of color, that make people that are less educated, all those things are connected, of course, more exposed and more vulnerable to adverse health outcomes. And until we address those societal inequalities, they're going to remain, even if we make healthcare perfect and accessible for everybody. I am, I'm very glad you brought up COVID because um, 
I followed a series of interviews you did a little bit earlier in the pandemic. Right now it's uh, October 2020, so we're several months in to uh, coronavirus pandemic this year. And um, so you talked about in a couple very awesome interviews that I read uh, some of the structural challenges, some of the structural inequities that are are leading to um, just sort of like disproportionate infection rates, right? And I looked at our data last week in Wisconsin in particular. So um, 17.5% of COVID deaths in Wisconsin were Black people, but only 7% of our population is Black. So that is a huge gap or huge inequity that shouldn't be there. Um, And I know in uh, past interviews and articles that you've... um, interviews you've given, articles you've talked about, um, a huge part of that, yes, is like workplace protections, whether they're available, whether the kinds of jobs that um, people in our state are doing can be done from home or not. And you've talked about this inequity in exposure and theoretically, eventually, we will move toward protection on a larger scale for our country as we hopefully find a way out of this pandemic. And how do we make sure that's equitable? What, in terms of testing and um, hypothetical vaccines, and I just have this kind of worry that the way out of COVID will also not be equitable for everyone? Yeah, that's a really good and hard question. And and really more brilliant people than me have thought about this and tried to think through how we equitably um, distribute a vaccine. Um, I think there are a couple of things here. One is that um, it's very clear, I think, from a bipartisan set of folks um, and apolitical folks that our, our federal response to COVID has been wholly inadequate. And our state responses have been very patch, patchwork, right? You can't have a good response in one state and then a failed response in another state or good response in one county and a better response in another county. That doesn't work. (laughs) Diseases don't work that way. Infectious diseases especially um, don't work that way. So there's that. But conditional upon a, a more robust federal and state response, you still have to get past the fact that um, there are people that were vaccine hesitant before, but now you have people who are very pro-vaccine, that are very clear about the science, that distrust the way that the process has been politicized. And given that uh, communities of color and or, or low SES communities have been experimented upon by scientists. Like we have, we often talk about the Tuskegee experiment where black men with syphilis were were observed and allowed to um, progress with the with the disease, even though we had treatment. Um, we talk about the men, but we don't talk about the fact that they pass those diseases, that disease on to their partners and their children, right? And, and beyond that, we, we saw that the pill in Puerto Rico was tested on women in Puerto Rico. I mean, it goes on and on and on. And I think we make a mistake to to think about those ex- those experiments in the past because we still have a problem with the way that folks of color and other marginalized communities are treated in in medical environments. That's just the truth, right? 
And and until that's addressed, you know, the the distrust of the COVID vaccine is going to emanate from all of these other earned mistrust issues that are that are developing. So that is going to be really hard. And I think what we can do is one, uh, acknowledge the problem. And I think in this year of Breonna Taylor and George Floyd, um, we have had a reckoning that I hope will not just be fleeting. And that needs to be acknowledged how race and it just, just creeps into everything we do and who we are. And we can see that in the data. This is not just, oh, well, you know, I'm making stuff up. We can see empirical evidence of this. And more important, we can see people's lived experiences of these things. And there are people that that understand how to address these issues. And it means elevating the voices of Black scientists and other scientists of color who are who've been talking about these things for years. It means when we talk about equitable distribution, we bring people from the communities to the table because they know much better than we do. Even I, as a Black scientist, don't know um, all of the things that, that need to be known about the challenges that communities face and the resilience and the resources that they possess. So I think that's to, that's to center the folks that need to be centered. And then three, um, we need to address the underlying issues that uh, produce these COVID disparities in the first place. One, making sure that we expand access to care. So in the short term, expand Medicaid to all 50 states. And, you know, given the restrictions that we have for federal means tested programs for immigrants, we need to expand mer emergency Medicaid. Like now, you cannot deny people access to health care during a pandemic. You can, right? But you have what we have now. Right. Infectious disease doesn't care about fair or unfair or whether you earned your health care. The reality is we need to have people um, have access to health insurance. That's 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 three. That's three. And then I think the fourth thing is that we really need to to reimagine what care looks like and what benefits look like. And what I mean by that is that nearly 60,000 of the covid dead are coming from nursing homes. I think that's the, the figure that I've seen. And the disabled community has talked for decades about the dangers of being in congregate settings. And we have not listened. And here's here's where we are. And they've and one of the issues with Medicaid is that it doesn't easily allow for people to receive in-home care. And if you don't receive in-home care, you have to go to a congregate setting, which places you at higher risk for COVID. So the very issue that they've been talking about needs to be addressed through policy and making sure that people that are disabled can receive care at home and not be exposed and be able to have the autonomy that they're asking for is, is central to that. So I think that is a key thing in terms of reshaping our safety net, strengthening it, but also making policy flexible so that people can get the care they need in the settings that they desire. Absolutely. I have kind of one last question, um, and it's a little bit of a pivot, but it's uh, election season. It's a divisible by four years, so it's a presidential election, and um, healthcare and reproductive health are top issues for a lot of voters, understandably. Um, and I'm wondering if you have 
suggestions or ideas for how those of us who are getting ready to cast our ballots can kind of parse through um, policies that are being presented to really understand what a policy I can read on a candidate's website is actually going to mean for my life. Like turning that campaign promise into action on the ground. How do I understand what candidates are telling me and what it will actually could mean for me? That's a really important question and a really hard question. I think that as researchers, we need to do a much better job of communicating the results of our research and and communicating how to translate, you know, these policies um, and how to assess them to the general public. And I think that's just something we need to do a better job of, but again, is not rewarded in the academy very much. Um, one of the reasons why I'm actually really excited to be here at UW is that there seems to be a genuine appreciation for doing the kind of work that impacts the communities here and translating that to community members and policymakers and other decision makers through this Wisconsin idea. Um, and that that is very valuable. And I was kind of surprised and in a pleasant way that that kind of science communication and research translation is valued here at UW. But to answer your question, um, I think some good resources for thinking through these things, um, health affairs, as blogs and health affairs has um, articles that I think do a really good job of thinking through some of these current issues and thinking through um, what the implications of some of these policies are for for everyday Americans. Um, I think that journal articles are nice, but it's just really hard to translate them into things that are going to be helpful to you. Um, another thing, and um, this is probably very self-interested, but I have done a couple of articles for Medical News Today, and I'm writing one now in my head, but it's due next week, um, thinking about how the election is going to impact maternal and child health disparities. So I'm very excited about that. So I'll be writing that and trying to think about how to state some of these issues in a way that's accessible for people that are non-academics or even academics that are outside of my field. So the big recommendations I would have definitely when it comes to um, health policy, health affairs is a really good place to go. Um, and I think it's, it's a good way to kind of think through some of these issues. In terms of COVID-19, I have a huge um, soft spot for Dear Pandemic which is populated by brilliant women scholars, most of whom are moms, that sort of take the journal research um, related to COVID and, and systematically think about it in more, more clear and simple terms. How do we translate this research related to COVID? What are the implications of policies related to COVID? Um, and they disseminate that on their Twitter feed, Instagram feed, Facebook page, et cetera. So I think that there are so many people that are really doing some great, innovative, scientific communication research. It's actually Black and Scientific Communication Week. Lots of Black scholars that are doing this work. Um, those are, I think, the places to go for, for just really clear-headed and um, just a more simple way of sorting through all of these complex and sometimes conflicting uh, research um, data and ideas. As we're wrapping up, I want to know if you're okay with it. Um, 
as we look forward to like the next six months or so, what are you working on that's the most exciting to you? What are what's on your plate that you are really excited to dive into? Oh gosh, all of the things. I'm probably working on way too many things, but I I, I love it. Uh, what am I working on that I'm really excited about? Um, I'm doing some work with the Center for Public Health Law at Temple, where I'm a fellow. Um, we I'm working with law students to create um, a 15 plus year retrospective database on mandatory waiting period and counseling laws related to abortion. And I'm going to be connecting those to racial disparities in maternal and child health. Now, what happens, um, I don't know what the results will be, but that's a project I'm really excited about. Um, another thing I'm excited about is working with students. I love working with students. They teach me so much and it's just a joy to see them grow. And I have two students that I'm working with on a big project that's I don't know, again, if I'm going to be able to pull it off, but we're going to be looking at um, um, hospital desegregation in the 60s and, to, and try to understand whether it's linked to declines in um, maternal mortality, particularly among non-Black moms. So that's something I'm also really excited about. And then a third project I'm excited about is it's I'm not working on it per se, but I'm I'm writing up the results. So that community project that I'm um, that I worked on collecting pilot data related to discrimination and health outcomes among Latinx immigrants. I'm really excited about writing that up and being able to take the results back to the communities. Um, they they were so open and so warm and so kind, and they just said, you know, please bring it back. Please tell us what you found. So being able to disseminate that is on my list of priorities for the next six months because I don't want to um, take the gift that they gave us for granted. So those are the three big things that I'm working on. But of course, I'm, all, I'm always working on all the things. Um, so that's just kind of a taste. Um, Dr. Green, thank you so much for joining us on the Women's HealthCast today. I really appreciate your time. I enjoyed this so much. I did too. I love podcasts and I love this one. So I'm really excited to see what you come up with. Join us on the next episode of the Women's Health Cast, where we will brush up on our health literacy with Dr. Heidi Brown. The Women's Health Cast is a production of the UW-Madison Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology. This episode was produced and engineered by Rob Garza. You can find the Women's Health Cast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And you can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at WISCOBGYN. Let us know how we're doing, rate and review us in the podcast app, and let us know what women's health issues you'd like to learn about. Thanks for listening. <laughs>